Um, all right, so we made it through announcements, and I want to start today with a passage from Psalms. So if you guys want to open with, to your Bibles to Psalm 18, 1 through 19, and actually stand with me for the reading of the word, uh, if you guys can, if you're able to. <laughs> so, again, that's Psalms 18, 1 through 19. We'll also have it up here on the screen. I love you, O O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assail me, and the, the cords of Sheol tangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was very angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring the fire from his mouth glowing. Coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your breath of your nostrils. He sent, up, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Let's pray. Father, I just lift up uh, to you our, our congregation, our church, uh, our, our Christian community, our uh, our people in Stafford County, God, I just pray that today you would speak to them on an individual level, whether they're here in service or watching online. God, I pray that lives would be changed, hearts would be changed, and that they would be able to take something from today's message and apply it to their lives. Lord, speak through me today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so uh, for those of you who are in your seats or watching online and are confused, no, I am not Pastor Travis. Um, you could tell because I got some hair on my head. Um, <laughs> my, uh, again, I'm Pastor Jared, and I'm the youth pastor here at Stafford County Christian Church. And this week, we're going to be continuing through the Gospel of Mark as we have been, which, by the way, is my favorite gospel. And for any of my ADD people that are out there, uh, this should be right up your alley, too. <laughs> Mark is called the Action Gospel, and it's for good reason. Um, now, if you've been here any length of time, you know that Travis likes to present me with the most challenging sermons and, <laughs> and topics, and this week isn't very different. So uh, we, we've got a lot to unpack today, but I have found that it is so true that we can't grow if we're not challenged. Now, and I know that sometimes this is hard to hear and hard to understand, and so what I want you guys to do is look at your neighbor and on the count of three say, we can't grow if we're not challenged. I want you to tell them that. So... Again, that's we can't grow if we're not challenged. One, two, three. 
awesome. Yes, we can't grow if we're not challenged. If you believe that, I want to hear an amen. 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 So, awesome. Having said that, if you guys have any comments or concerns, I want you to refer to this guy. Um, (laughs) If you feel challenged today and you want to ask some questions, this guy, uh, his email is in everything, so you can reach out to him. All right, thank you. Um, So today we're going to be talking about Jesus's authority. Um, And if I stumble over that word Jesus's a thousand times, you're going to hear me say Jesus and Jesus's like 20 different times in 20 different ways. So I just trip over that all the time. But Jesus's authority, and I want you guys to open up your Bibles again, turn to Mark 3, 20 through 30. That's where we're picking up. And while you turn there, I want to talk about where we've been. Now, Every week with my students, I like to establish context because if we don't understand the context of our passage, then we're not going to understand anything about the passage itself. And context is so important to the passage that we're going to be working through today. Now, over the past weeks, you guys will uh, remember that Jesus has been getting busier and busier since he began his ministry. He's been teaching and performing miracles in public. He is surrounded by large crowds, and he's already had confrontations with some of the religious leaders around him called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And because of the crowds, Jesus had retreated into a boat and that was waiting for him on the shore, and then he left to go alone to a mountainside so he could rest and pray. And he brought with him to that mountain 12 men who would become the uh, 12 apostles and gave them the authority to preach and to cast out demons. And what we're going to read is what happened when they came down from that mountain, when they had returned and um, from that strategic withdrawal, and Jesus continues his ministry. He enters a house and is immediately, again, surrounded by crowds. Now, that's something I notice about Jesus. Everywhere that he goes, people are drawn to him. And there were so many people and so many needs that Jesus and his followers, they didn't even have time to, they didn't have time to take a break, and they didn't have time to eat at all. And this is the context for two very important events. In this crowd, there are a lot of different people with a lot of different needs. Some of them are there to be a part of the event. Some are there to be touched and healed. Uh, Some have come to listen to Jesus, and others have come to speak to him. But within all of these people and all of these groups in the crowd, there are two groups that have a special relationship to Jesus, and it's going to tell us a lot about who he is. And so, again, we're going to be reading from Mark 3, 20 through 30. Uh, If you guys have opened there in your Bibles, we're also going to have it up here on the screen. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And when he called to them, when he called to him and it said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all the sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, 
there is a lot in this passage to unpack, um, and we're going to work our way right through it. Uh, I'm going to be moving quick, so if you're taking notes, try to keep up with me. If not, we can talk after service again, and Travis is always there to listen. <laughs> so, uh, again, there were two groups in this, uh, this huge crowd that, we, that were there to see Jesus, and first of those groups was Jesus' family. And these are the people that you would think would know Jesus best, they would have come to support him, but I want you to notice what verse 21 says. It says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Here we see that even those people that were closest to Jesus, even those people who knew him best, his mother, Mary, his brothers, and his sisters didn't really understand what he was doing, and were ready to wrap him up in a straitjacket and put him in a padded room, essentially. They figured he'd gone over the edge as some kind of religious fanatic. And I can hear his brothers kind of moving through this crowd and apologizing to the people and saying, it's the heat, guys. He's been under a lot of stress. He's not eating well. I'm so sorry. We'll go and get him. I just see them moving through the crowd and saying that. And, and they were fine when his teachings were confined to this small crowd. But now it was kind of getting out of control. People are getting upset. He's attracting a lot of attention, and some of it really was not good attention. And it was time for the family to come and stop him, and that's what they were thinking. And I want to I stop here real quick and point this out. The people that were closest to Jesus thought that he was a radical. If people don't look at our walk with Christ and think that we are fanatic, a fanatic, we might want to check ourselves. Jesus is holy, and does anybody know what that means, the word holy? Set apart, yes. He is so radically different from the things around us. Now, for those of you who have been uh, <laughs> at the church a while, you know that Travis is a big OSU fan. Boo, yes. <laughs> In fact, he wears the team colors and the symbols regularly, and he has this horrible sticker up in his office that I have to look at every time I go in there that's the symbol for his team. Uh, I myself am a big Steelers fan, and I like to represent the black and gold uh, when I'm out on game day. So if you guys, during the football season, you notice I'm always wearing a yellow shirt, that's why. Um, <laughs> and when I'm wearing my team colors, it's obvious who I stand for, right? And in the same way, your life should be so radically different from the culture around us, so set apart that people look at you and they see what team you represent. They should see the team by the way that you live your life. And the second group that we see here are the scribes, who were the teachers of the law who came down uh, from Jerusalem. And this is who I want to focus on for a bit. If you recall, the Pharisees, and who were the religious elite, keepers of the most strict traditions and laws, who were worried about Jesus' teaching um, because they thought it would make them lose control over the people, and the Herodians, um, who were influential supporters of the Roman occupation, who were worried that if Jesus created an uproar, that the people might rebel against Rome and cause a war. So you have two very concerned groups here had already joined together to try and kill Jesus. And what this probably means is that they sent word to Jerusalem, to the scribes, to the teachers, to the lawyers, and to everyone with public influence to come down and figure out a way to discredit and eliminate this man that was having such a powerful effect on the people around him. 
and who every time they challenged him honestly made them look like fools. Their main problem was that none of them could deny the supernatural power that Jesus had. See, his teaching was captivating and authoritative, but it was more than that. He had also healed the sick, made lepers well, and had paralytics pick up their mat and walk in front of large crowds. And he had commanded demons to be silent and then drove them out of people and with only a word from his mouth. He had true and real power that could not be denied because they had encountered it, a power that none of them possessed. But because they were steeped in the muck and mire of their rules and religion, they refused to see what was right in front of them. The Son of God had come down, and the Messiah was in their presence. They didn't want to believe that Jesus' power was from God, because if they admitted that, then they would have to accept, first accept him as Messiah, second give up their power, their plans, and their, their influence. And they simply couldn't do that. And they would give up their po political positions to Jesus. They would have to accept Jesus' interpretation of the law instead of their own, and they would have to change the way that they lived. And worst of all for them, they would have to submit to him as their Lord. So they only had one other recourse, because th that wasn't really in the cards for them. That wasn't an option for them to be able to do uh, in their own minds. So they only had one other option, and it, and it was since they couldn't deny his power, they had to tell everyone that the power didn't come from God, but from Satan. If they could convince the people of that, it not only discredited his teachings— but it had the added benefit that practicing magic by Satan's power was a capital offense and therefore punishable by stoning a person to death. So they're, they're, they're coming for him, but I think Jesus says, come and get it. And I, I want to I get the picture here. A huge crowd, all making noise, all calling out for Jesus, and suddenly right through the crowd comes one of the most scholarly in the land, and, or one of the lead Pharisees from Jerusalem. And they came walking up through the crowd, uh, had a huge entourage. They're dressed to the nines, um, and they're wearing the most religious attire. And the crowd falls silent, shocked by the appearance of this teacher. And what was about to happen? They say, he is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And that would have certainly gotten the crowd's attention. If you guys were listening to a preacher and somebody came up beside you and screamed that, wouldn't it have your attention? This is what, what is happening at that time. And Beelzebub is a word that's kind of hard to understand. And it's most likely the same word that is uh, used in the Old Testament refer referring to Baal or Baal, uh, the same false god that Elijah had a contest with on Mount Carmel. More literally, it's translated Lord of Flies. Um, but this is a reference back to Baal. And so... The name is combined with the word for exalted dwelling or strong house, which we're going to see Jesus pick up on again later. And suffice it to say, it was a word for an enemy of God. Everyone would have understood it to be another name for Satan. And their accusation was ridiculous, it was nonsensical, and Jesus points that out to them directly. And I want you to look at what happens. You can see crowd, a crowd of teachers, lawyers, and Pharisees now yelling accusations, trying to draw attention to themselves and away from Jesus. So what does Jesus do? It says, so Jesus called them. 
and I love that. And I, I've watched a lot of action movies, and there's always uh, a scene like this at some point, and one of my favorites is um, The Matrix, and the main character, Neo, is being mentored by a man named Morpheus, and they go into a sparring room, and after learning Kung Fu, and after a quick dem demonstration of their abilities, Morpheus says, okay, hit me if you can. And after a little bit of sparring, young Neo, he gets up and he has some confidence and his mentor looks him straight in the eyes and without a word gestures, come and get it. And maybe I'm reading a little into the passage, but that's exactly what I am seeing Jesus doing here. He looks through the crowd, right into the eyes of these experts, and says, okay, hit me if you can. But he wasn't going to call down fire on them or lay down this complex theology, uh, theological debate on them. Instead, he disarms their arguments by telling a simple story. That way, they and everyone that was around them listening would understand that what they were saying was absurd. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. Listen, guys, Jesus uh, seems to be saying, what you're saying doesn't hold together at all. How could Jesus be serving Satan or be possessed by Satan when everything that he is doing is wreaking havoc and doing devastating damage to Satan's kingdom? Beelzebub isn't running around dividing from, divided from the demons, healing people and proclaiming the love and salvation of God. There is no civil war in the demonic realm. No, Satan and his demons are still active and are doing all that they can to oppose what is good and draws people to God. The demons have power, but they have absolutely no authority over the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king over all. And that includes everything in the spiritual realm. All the demons are fearful of and must obey Jesus. The only one that can walk into a for fortress and take on the strong man is a strong man. The only one that can liberate the captives and possess possessions of a powerful kingdom is a more powerful kingdom. This is the authority of Jesus. And that was the devastating truth that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not want to admit. That Jesus was the stronger one, the mightier king, and that he had the greater kingdom. They would not admit, despite all of the evidence that he was stronger, wiser, more powerful, more spiritual, more knowledgeable, and more worthy to be a teacher, guide, and lord than they. He is the mighty king of the universe to whom all will give their deference. And I started this morning uh, with Psalm 18 because the picture that we have uh, in our mind for Jesus is far too tame. We speak a lot more about the gentle Jesus, the meek and the mild, the one who's surrounded by lambs and children and always has this soft glow about him. He would never hurt a fly. He would never raise his voice, never challenge anyone, never hurt anyone's feelings. This is the only view that many, the only view of Jesus that many people know. And without question, Jesus was gentle and kind 
and loving and patient. And he was the most gentle and patient person ever, in fact. But that is not the only picture of Jesus that we see in Scripture. Jesus is also the conquering king. He's the warrior. He's the lion of Judah, the strong deliverer, the rock, the fortress, our shield, our defender, and the stronghold of our salvation. I'm reminded of the description of Jesus that we see in Revelation 19, 11 through 21, where Jesus is bringing the final battle against his enemies, and I'm going to read that to you guys here. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his head, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one, no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine white linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the generals, the, and the mighty men, the horse and the riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all of the birds scorched themselves on their flesh. This is a very different picture of Jesus than we traditionally see. Am I right? It's one that we don't often talk about, but one that we need to remember. Believing in Jesus, it's not a trivial thing. Worshiping Jesus is not a choice. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This passage does not describe a battle. It describes a slaughter. Jesus, with the power of just his words, just his words destroys his enemy. At some point, everyone will believe in Jesus. Because they will all stand before him. They will all see, but by then, for most, it will be too late. Because believing in Jesus is not enough. James 2.19 says that even the demons believe in Jesus. What is required is repentance from sin, faith in him, and a belief that Jesus is your Lord and Savior who you love, honor, and obey. And all that happens in this, all of that happens in this life now. We are in this between time when we have the opportunity to be saved. One day, it'll be too late. You see, that's why Jesus gave the warning to the teachers of the law about the unforgivable sin. 
He said, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not, never be forgiven, but he is, a, he is guilty of an eternal sin. And this is the truth, and a critical point to the gospel of Jesus. Believing in Jesus in your mind is not enough. The Pharisees couldn't deny what Jesus was doing uh, because they were seeing these amazing things happening in front of them. They believed it because they saw it with their own eyes. They couldn't deny those facts. But we are not here today to acknowledge the historical fact that Jesus died for our sins and then rose again. We are here today to exercise our faith and trust in Jesus, the one who lives today. And we are here to give our obedience, worship, tithes, offering, service, and praise to the Son of God who reigns on high and is King of all, King, and King of our hearts and King of our lives. And we confess that in our worship today. We confess the omnipotence of the Almighty God, the majesty of King Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, and not just confess them, but welcome them. Not just welcome them, but invite them. And not just invite them, but ask them to inhabit this place, to invade this place, to take over everything that we are doing right into our own hearts. We give him ownership of our very selves because he saves us and he forgives us. Jesus says that all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. And this is a scriptural truth because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for the sins of every individual who believes in him. But there is no sin uh, that we can commit that will not be forgiven. Nothing. Not from the whitest lie to the most perverted, inhuman, detestable action. We can be freed from the guilt and declared righteous because of Jesus. No matter how stained or bad or evil you have been in your life, God has promised that he can make you clean again. John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. And because of the amazing grace of God, Jesus is our only way to salvation. There's only one thing that cannot be forgiven, and it's tied right to our perception of who Jesus is. And let's turn back for a second and look at the verse. It says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And alongside that, uh, let's also bring in another passage from Luke 12, 10. It says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So that presents us with a question. What is the unforgivable sin? What is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? I've heard before uh, many ideas on what the eternal sin is. Some say that it's suicide. Um, some say that it's getting a tattoo. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but I've heard these things before. But let's look at it within context. I said at the beginning that that was going to be really important to our message today. Let's talk about it again. Let's talk about this context. Now, blasphemy is an act that is performed by speaking. It is expressing the thoughts of the inner workings of a person's heart. 
Here we see a group of Bible experts, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who have seen the evidence of Jesus' power and goodness, saying that the work was not from God, but that it was from the devil. They hardened their hearts to what God is doing right in front of them. And we actually see something that parallels this in Exodus with Pharaoh. Um, And you can look through the story of Exodus in uh, the chapter 7 through 11. Um, And I'm going to work my way down through the plagues here so you guys can see what is happening here. Um, Blood, uh, turning the Nile to blood, Pharaoh's heart became hard. The frogs, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Gnats, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Flies, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Livestock die, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Boils, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Hail, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Locusts, God announces that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Darkness, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And death to the firstborn, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because of all the things that they would, ha- would lose if they had admitted that Jesus was the Messiah, they voluntarily and deliberately, knowingly, and permanently hardened their hearts against the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is what blasphemy is. And I have it up here so you guys can see it. I want to make it very clear what I'm saying here. Voluntarily, deliberately, knowingly, and permanently hardening one's heart against the work of the Holy Spirit. And God turns you over to that as we see is the case with Pharaoh. Guys, I, uh, my first sermon here Uh, another challenging one, was about marriage and vows. And I played a short video for you guys. It was uh, by Casting Crowns. The song was Slow Fade. It's never this big leap that causes you to lose faith. It's step after step after step. Jesus distinguishes this sin from other sins. All sins will be forgiven except this one. And let me read you something from one of my uh, commentaries. Christians often worry that they have committed this sin, but such a concern itself is evidence of an openness to the work of the Spirit. I want you guys to remember that the only way to commit this sin is to have an understanding from God about sin, salvation, and his love, and all of those are acts of the Holy Spirit, and then to willfully shut that door to that understanding, reject God, reject forgiveness, and to reject his love. Looking into the heart of God, the love of Jesus, and then walking away because you would rather have something else. This is a matter of the heart, not a matter of accidentally saying something. And I think that's important to remember because I think that, uh, I don't know if you guys have, but I did grow up with a a fear of accidentally committing the unforgivable sin. This is an act of the heart. It's not a, a slip of the tongue. The teachers of the law were dangerously close to that line, and I believe Jesus was giving them a warning. Their hearts were hardening almost to stone, Their mouths were blaspheming, and Jesus was telling them that they needed to come back from that precipice because they didn't have many steps left. Today, in closing, I want to tell you guys, not everyone on this earth will be saved. Salvation is offered to everyone, but it will not be accepted by many, if not most. 
Some form of light is shown to everyone, but most will reject it. I want you to listen to Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath, wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in, these th in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The people that are being described in that passage have hardened hearts. They are without excuse. They will stand before Jesus at the end of time and be without excuse when he condemns them to eternal torment and hell. All of the people who say they are going to see God and give him a piece of their minds or talk themselves into heaven because of the situation that they've been put into or explain away uh, why they rejected God, uh, revealed, uh, rejected what God revealed about himself in scripture, are fools. All of their reasons and excuses and arguments will melt away like wax in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the King, the Defender, the one who has all of the power and authority. I say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, working, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Jesus will redeem anyone from sin who would repent from sin and believe in him. And so today, I present you with an opportunity to open your heart to him. If you have heard him speaking to you today, or he has been showing you his presence, don't close your heart to him. Do not deny him, and don't wait until later. We are not promised the next day, let alone the next second. And if you're already saved, remember that Jesus isn't just meek and mild, but he is a warrior. He is a king and a deliverer. I want you to turn to him in your time of trouble, and he wants you to. When you feel temptation or you feel spiritual oppression, when you hear the voice of the accuser in your ear, call on your defender, on your shield, and on your strong tower. And he will come and he will save you. And I started this morning with uh, Psalms 18. And the end of that is he delights in you. He will save you because he delights in you. Despite all of the things that are wrong in your life, the things that are sin, the things that you feel, I've fallen short, I don't live up to expectations, I don't live up to this standard, Jesus says, I love you, I delight in you. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, as Lord and King, I invite you to, uh, during our time of prayer, to pray to him, to see our elders, to see Pastor Travis, and to pray with him. Because, guys, this is the biggest commitment in your lives. It's not trivial. It's not something that's small. I don't want you to buy in at this low level of a Jesus who is only gentle, who is only 
only going to treat you with kid gloves because Jesus is bigger than that. He is more powerful than that. He will change your life in a radical way. And if you want to see that change in your life today, commit to him. Even if you've already committed to him before, recommit to him today in your lives and say, Jesus, I'm going to serve you despite what's happening around me, despite what's happening in me, the war in my flesh, because God, you will make the way. The Holy Spirit will guide you in your life. He will help you to speak to people about him. He will help you to make decisions when times are tough. I know that you guys are facing the same things that I'm facing in your daily life, that things are hard. It is hard to be a Christian. Listen to the voice of the Spirit because He is going to guide you. He is real, He is present, and He will guide you. Recommit to Him today. Now we're going to go into our uh, time of communion here. And during that time, um, we, uh, we have communion there in the back and on the sides. You can send uh, one member of your family to go and get that. While we go into that time, thank God for the awesome work that he's doing in you now. And pray that he changes your life even more. That he makes you a radical for him. Be different than the culture. Be different than what's around us. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for being who you are, for having the power, power and the authority over our lives today. God, I just pray that you would continue to grow your spirit inside of us, that God, we would continue to be able to uh, disciple those around us, and that God, in our daily life, not just this abstract thought, but in our daily life, we would see how you want us to live. God, we don't need a shallow faith. We don't need a little faith. We need to grow in our faith. It's time to get off spiritual milk and move to our spiritual meat. God, we pray and we say we want this today. In your name we pray. Amen.